We are going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And that is on page 67 if you have a book. As we said, this book of 1 Corinthians is addressing two issues. The first issue it's addressing is words that Paul had heard about the church in Corinth. That he had heard some reports about things that were going on that he needed to kind of set straight. And the other occasion is that the church had previously written Paul a letter. And this is Paul's response to them, addressing some of these issues. And as we saw last week, uh, Paul really is just taking one issue at a time and just addressing it. Uh, And we saw various issues last week, and we're going to continue to see various issues this week as we look in 1 Corinthians. So as we see here, the first uh, chapter that we're going to come to today is chapter 11. Chapter 11 has two major issues that Paul is going to deal with. The first major issue that Paul is going to deal with, the first issue that Paul is going to deal with is the issue of head coverings in worship. Head coverings in worship. And the second issue is the abuses and divisions at the Lord's table. So those are the two major issues that we uh, will address here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. You see that right there, the head coverings in worship and the abuses at the Lord's table. This issue of head coverings in chapter 11, verses 2 through 16, uh, has been kind of controversial over the years. Now, if we notice in our setting today, let's just take our church and our church Uh, We don't see many ladies coming in with a covering over uh, their hair. Uh, You look at other cultures, maybe over in the the Middle Eastern cultures, and you would see women that are dressed with with shawls and covering their head. So that should tell us, because the majority of people living in Western America today, we do not have a custom of wearing certain types of head coverings in worship for women. Other cultures do. So the first thing that we can draw from this is that what Paul is dealing with here is primarily a cultural issue of their day. However, the cultural issue of their day has a spiritual principle that goes along with it. So what I like to say is, you know, if there are issues that are cultural, like last week we left off and we didn't get to it, but that is uh, buying food from the marketplace that had been sacrificed in pagan temples. Now, we don't deal with that here in, in our nation today. We don't have pagan temples where meat is sacrificed to idols, and then they you know, take the meat and take it to the marketplace, and you buy it and serve it in your homes. That's just a foreign concept to us. But again, that goes to God relates His Word in historical settings. So that was a first century issue that they were dealing with. However, in behind all of those issues, there are spiritual principles that we all can draw from, even if the historical particulars are not exactly the same. So it is for the issue here with the head coverings. So as we see on page 67, I'm going to read the problem, the response, and then make some comments. The problem is that most likely uh, women were discarding a traditional loose-fitting shawl, a head covering, on the basis of being as the angels were, and Scripture kind of alludes to that, which apparently brought tensions in the marital relationships. Uh, the women were, in their husbands' views, being like men. 
Paul's response is, although women do have authority over their own heads on this matter, in the Lord, women and men are interdependent. The, woman, uh, the women should maintain the customs so as not to appear like men. Otherwise, he argues, go the whole way looking like a man and be shaved. So looking at the first uh, several verses here, the first 16 verses, we're not going to read all of these. I'm just going to highlight a couple because, again, this issue, we want to look at the main issue behind the issue. And we have to go back to the setting in Corinth. Corinth had a lot of pagan temples, as we just alluded to. There was a lot of idol worship, and part of those pagan temple rituals was a lot of uh, prostitution. You know, we read last week where Paul says, has to tell the men, don't go be going down to the prostitutes and joining yourself with a prostitute. Uh, that's not a good thing to do. Uh, and some of this and the head covering issue for the church here probably relates to that. As uh, many women who were in the pagan temples oftentimes had shaven heads. So women uh, would have either kept their hair long that were not a part of the pagan temples, kept their hair long, or wear a head covering over their head to differentiate themselves from the temple prostitutes. Uh, because the church was supposed to be distinct and different from the pagan idols and temples out in the world. So, you know, if, if the women in the temples, if they had shaven heads, you know, and then you had a wife sitting, you had a woman sitting with a man or a woman with a man in church, people might begin to talk. So they would put a covering over their head or they would keep their hair long in order to differentiate themselves from the pagan worship of the day. And this did a couple of things. It showed their submission uh, to their, their husbands, and it showed their uh, submission to the Lord. So the principle behind this uh, we see in verse number 3. So if you look in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse number 3, Paul says, I want you to realize. So he's, they have this issue for head coverings, and he's giving them a reason why that they are doing that. I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ. So the issue with the head coverings has to do with authority. It has to do with um, headship, uh, order that God had designed, and also covering, that Christ was the man's covering. Um, so uh, verse 3, the head of every man is Christ. The head of every woman is the man. And again, this is probably not just men and women, but a husband and wife relationship. And the head of Christ is God. So we see, uh, you know, God is the covering of Christ. Christ is the covering of the man, and the man is the covering of his wife. And that was the order that we established. And it was played out in worship here um, through how they prayed and prophesied in the assembly. So if a woman prayed and prophesied in the assembly, she was to, uh, you know, have her head covered or long hair. Uh, the men were not. So we see the, the custom that the church had there, and in fact, Paul goes on and calls it a custom in the church, but it's based on a spiritual principle. So I like to say where the customs may differ, I don't believe the issue of the head covering. You can take this and I think make it very legalistic. Um, I think more importantly is to take the spiritual principle and understand how to apply, the, apply these principles to our lives, to our homes, to our churches uh, and realize that the order that God has called. Um, it goes on to say in verse number 11, you know, even when he gives the instructions of worship, he says, nevertheless, 
in the Lord, women are not independent of the man, nor is the man independent of the woman. So it's not about you know, authoritarianism or ruling over one another, uh, because the women are not independent of the man, but the man is not independent of the woman. Verse 12 says, For as the woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. So they're interdependent one of another. Then it says, But everything comes from God. Everything comes from God. So this is the issue that he's, the first issue that he deals with in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The second issue goes back to one of our early themes in 1 Corinthians. This is the issue of divisions. So after head coverings, he takes up this issue of the abuses at the Lord's table. The abuses at the Lord's table. So if, we, if you look in your book under uh, chapter 11, verse 17 through 34, their division here is along the lines of rich and poor. You would have the rich that had plenty to eat, and then you had the poor that did not have a lot to eat, and they were in the same assembly. And this is related to the eating of a meal in connection with the Lord's table. So as they gathered together to celebrate the Lord's table, they would also share a community meal together. Well, what was happening was there would be divisions within the body, and those that had plenty would go over here and they would eat by themselves, excluding and despising those who were poor. So some were basically having gluttony around the Lord's table, while others were starving at the Lord's table. So he says this is related to the eating of a meal in connection with the Lord's table, at which the poor were being excluded. Paul's response, he reminds them of the words of institution of the Lord's Supper, that they must discern the body of Christ. And we'll mention what that means in a moment. He's, he kind of mentions it here, that discerning the body of Christ is not just the elements of the body and blood, but it's themselves as the corporate body of Christ. Otherwise, they eat for judgment instead of blessing. So they eat private meals privately. If, you know, if this group wanted to eat privately, then do it at home, private, not connected with something in the church. But at the community meals, make sure everyone is equally welcome. So this kind of goes back, if you'll look in your scripture back to chapter 10, and verse number 16, 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 16, he says, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Now notice verse 17. Because there is one loaf, because there was one loaf, loaf of bread. We who are many are one body. So he's equating them as having participation in the Lord's Supper, but also using them also as a picture of these elements, as people that share in the blood of Christ and people that are pictured as the one loaf of bread, which is the body of Christ. So even in that scripture, Paul relates the church to the body of Christ. And he says, because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body. For we all share the one loaf. So that's kind of a, a setup for what he's going to talk about here. When he's talking about we are one loaf, we are one body. 
We're not a bunch of divided bodies. We are one body in Christ, and we share together in this Lord's Supper. So, but Paul hears, if you go down back to chapter 11 and verse 17, chapter 11, verse 17, he says, In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. He said, when you get together for a church meeting, it does more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. He says, uh, no doubt there have to be differences among you uh, to show which of you have God's approval. So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. He says, when you come and you eat dividing, qualifying others, disqualifying others, you're not really eating the Lord's Supper. You're not really eating the Lord's Supper. He says in verse 21, For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers, and as a result, one person remains hungry, and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God? You despise each other in the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. So there's still divisions among them. And when they come together with this meal, the well-to-do were abusing the poor, despising them, excluding them. So some were being gluttonous and drunken and some were going hungry. But they're supposed to be one body and sharing together. Um, and through this, and, and Paul goes to talk about, you know, he goes back to the institution of the Lord's Supper. And he says, because of this, they are eating and drinking in an unworthily manner. They are not doing what they're supposed to do at communion. Now, again, I mentioned, I think Sunday when we had communion, this scripture is often taken out of context. And I've heard it, you know, this way, as I've shared with you, as I shared on Sunday morning a couple of weeks back. Uh, some people say, you know, if you have any sin in your heart and you drink this cup and you eat this bread, then you're going to get sick and die. Uh, and you're going to be under judgment. He's not talking about that. He's talking corporately. This is a corporate admonition because of what was going on in the church. So he's not saying that people that had any kind of sin in their life were unworthy. He said this church, the way they were doing this was doing it in an unworthily manner because they were determining who was qualified to fellowship together and who was not qualified. And to Paul, that was unacceptable. That was unacceptable. For he goes back to appeal that the body and the blood was for everyone. It was not for those of a certain stature. It was not for those that, that were, were well-to-do and not for the poor and not for those who were, were less than. The Lord's Supper was for everyone because it's the Lord's Supper, not their own. He said, if you want to have your own supper, go and eat your own supper on your own time. But when you've come together as the Lord's Supper, you all eat together. So he tells them that in verse 29, that they were not discerning the Lord's body. Not discerning the Lord's body. And, and I believe that's speaking of each other. Because they were all a part of the body of Christ. And on doing that, they were making themselves no better than those that were out in the world. So Paul warns them, you know, don't go fall back under the judgment of this world when you're supposed to be together because this type of attitude and action is what the world does. 
And you will be like those who crucify the Lord again by saying who is in and who is out. So they were drinking judgment upon themselves and suffering the consequences of their hearts, their divisive hearts and their divisive attitudes. And Paul gives them the solution in verse 33. So you have to read, again, this is context. You can take a few verses out and make it say what you want. But when you read all the verses before, it has to do with the corporate body and, and, and the way they ate together and excluded others. And then you have to look at the verses after. So he concludes in verse number 33 on this thought. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry uh, or Anyone who's hungry that you want to eat by yourself should eat at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. So his solution is, if you want to do your own thing, do it on your own time. But when you're doing the Lord's thing, remember you are one body. Not to judge the body, not to divide the body, not to abuse the body, not to exclude the body, but to come together because the body and the blood was broken for everyone. So when you come together, you should all eat together, and that will prevent the abuses at the Lord's table. So you see a lot of the issues have to do with the issue of unity and the issue of no divisions in the church. So those are the two issues that are taken up in 1 Corinthians 11. Now as we proceed to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, now he deals with the issue of spiritual gifts. He told them in the first part, that they are lacking no spiritual gift, that God had given them spiritual gifts. However, but again, they were abusing them. And he really gets into the abuse in chapter 14, but he begins here by talking about the diversity of the spiritual gifts. So I want to read back on 67 in your book, uh, down at the bottom, chapter 12, 1 through 1440, the abuse of speaking in tongues. And this is what a lot of the... Uh, issue had to do with. The problem is their view of tongues as the language of angels, chapter 13, 1, caused them to overemphasize the gift in worship, which was the result, or with the result of their community worship, was non-intelligible and thus could not build up the body. So Paul's response is, first, the primary criteria for spiritual utterances is the confession of Jesus as Lord. Secondly, on the basis of the Trinitarian experience of God, Paul then urges the diversity of gifts in the unity of the Spirit, not just overemphasizing one gift, but to show that there are many gifts that God gives to edify the body. And in any case, love should rule at every point in their worship. So let's look in chapter 12. The first part of chapter 12, verses 1 through 11, deal with the spiritual gifts. So he turns his attention to spiritual gifts which are being abused in the church. And his purpose is, if you look in chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be unformed. I do not want you to be ignorant about spiritual gifts. So he does not want them to be ignorant. Then he speaks of the diversity of the gifts. In verses 4 through 6, he lifts, uh, he lists these gifts of the Spirit. Um, and these gifts of the Spirit are, he lists them here, the word of wisdom, a word of knowledge, faith, gifts of healing, miraculous powers or miracles, prophecy, discerning of spirits, 
tongues and interpretation of tongues. So that's what he lists in verses 4 through 6. And he said, these are the gifts that God has given to the church. But he tells them here, and if you notice in verse number 11, he says, all these are the work of one and the same Spirit. And he distributes them to each one just as he determines. So God gives these gifts for the edification of the church. Um, And if we'll go back real quickly to verse number um, 4. Go back to verse number 4. Verse number 4 says there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit that that, that distributes them. There are different kinds of service. We're not all going to do the same things, but there is the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in every one of them, the same God is at work. So he's saying we're not all going to have the same gifts. We're not all going to to work in the same way. But yet there's a unity because even though that we have different gifts, even though we have different places in the body, it's one spirit and one Lord working these things out from our lives. Now, a couple of things about these gifts of the spirit. First of all, they are grace gifts. The word gifts is the word charismata. It's the word grace. These are gifts that are given by the grace of God to use them to distribute as he wills. One of the, um, I think when when you look at spiritual gifts, I think one of the, the faults that we've had in the past, and when I was Coming up, one of the first studies we did as when I was in just a Bible study, they did what they called a spiritual gift inventory. And you had a book and you went through and you answered all these questions and it told you what your gift was. Well, one, now we may all have a certain function. Some people may be preachers, some people may be teachers, uh, some people may be, have the, the gift of help or service. So they're all different services that we use. But sometimes when it comes to gifts like these, it's not you have one and that's all that you have, or you have one and it's all that you have. It's God could use us in many different ways. And God can use these gifts multiple times in our lives. Not just one, but He uses them as He wills, and that's the Spirit gifts. But in the differences of these gifts, there is unity. And in the rest of the chapter, that's what He's saying. Even though there's different gifts that God gives to different people as He wills, it's the same Lord it's the same spirit, and you are still a part of one body. So from chapter, from verse number 12 all the way through the end, he speaks of the unity of the body. So coming out of these diverse spiritual gifts, chapter, or verse number 12, he says this, Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. The body of Christ is a many-membered body. We are all different members, but we are one body, and that body is the body of Christ. The body of Jesus rose from the grave and ascended into heaven. But the body of Christ, the body of the anointing that was on Christ, is still on the earth today in the form of a many-membered corporate body of Christ, using the gifts that God gives to accomplish God's purposes on the earth. So he says in verse 13, for we are all baptized by one spirit, 
so as to form one body, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free. We are all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. So he shows here and he's helping them to see the importance of the corporate body of believers, which is the body of Christ. And then he goes on to talk about the diversity in the body. Um, and the diversity of the body is a good thing because each member has a part to play. Whether they are a prominent part or a small part, every member has a part to play in the body. And he emphasizes that no part of the body should be despised. No part of the body should be looked down upon. No part of the body should be discarded. Going back to what he was talking about in chapter 11 with the abuse of the Lord's table, you should not despise the church of God. You should not look down and exclude or think you're better than one another, for we are all one loaf. And we're all one loaf by the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. So in verse number 21, if you look with me in verse 21, he says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, notice that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment, but God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. And if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. And if one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. So he tells them no part of the body should be despised. He says there should be no divisions in the body, and that Christ had formed the body, and that you are the body of Christ, and that you should, and that God has put people in the body as he wills to help edify the body. And then he lists uh, at the ending part of that chapter in verses 27 through 31, you know, he said, some of the church apostles, prophets, teachers, miracles, gifts of healing, help, guidance, and tongues. But, but in all of this, so he starts with the diversity of the gifts. Here's all the different gifts. You know, there's different gifts, but it's one Lord and one Spirit. God gives to everyone as He wills. Every part of the body is important. Every part has a function. We shouldn't despise any part of the body, for God has put this body together. He has set people in the body as He wills. And in the midst of all of this unity among division, He says, now eagerly desire the greater gifts. And I believe the greater gifts is using all of these gifts and who we are in love. So he leads out of this diverse body of believers into chapter 13, which we would call the love chapter. We would call the love chapter. And his point in chapter 13 in this short chapter is that love is the linchpin that holds the body together. And love will outlast everything else. And love is the greatest of all the other qualities. So he begins in chapter 13, verse 1, If I speak with the tongue of men and angels, but do not have love, I'm a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. There's no purpose or rhythm or rhyme of, of me without love. 
And then in verses 4 through 8, he lists the definition of love, and we're probably very familiar with these. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. Love is not self-seeking. It's not eagerly or easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. It does not delight in evil. It rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, and love never fails. So love is the linchpin of this body. And not just any kind of love, but the love of God that Paul lays out here. So if you want to check how you're doing on the love scale, go through this list of patience and kindness and not envying and boasting and not dishonoring and not self-seeking and not keeping a record of wrongs and always protecting and trusting and then we'll see what kind of love. And this is the kind of love that only God gives. So in verse number 8, he ends with love never fails. And then he contrasts that with the temporary nature of the gifts that we would need while we are here. Love never fails, but yet he says where there are tongues, uh, they will cease. Uh, where there is uh, knowledge, it will vanish away. Where there are properties, that they will fail. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the completeness comes or when, the, when that which is perfectness comes, the things that are in part that we need here, when we don't know everything and we see through a glass darkly and we only know in part, when we get to the point where we're not seeing in part but we see as the whole, we won't need any of those gifts. But love remains forever and love lasts forever. Uh, these scriptures here are some, now there are people that believe you know, that are called cessationists that believe many of or several of the gifts of the Spirit have, have ceased, um, either with the death of the last apostle or with the completion of the New Testament canon or when the Bible was put together in the, in the third century. Um, and they say when that which is perfect has come is somehow the, when the Scripture was completed. Um, I believe that's a gross misinterpretation of this Scripture because... Nowhere is it talking about the Scripture being completed or the last apostle dying out. I believe Paul is specifically talking about in this life we know in part. We understand in part. We prophesy in part. But then there will come a day where we will no longer know in part and prophesy in part, but we will know as we are known. And we will be like Christ and we will truly be perfect and complete. And so there will no longer be needed gifts then when we are you know, finally on the other side of this partial temporal life, but yet love will remain. He uses the now language and the then language. So his focus on the whole chapter is love. His focus isn't even really on the gift ceasing. That's not his focus at all. I had a, I had a professor tell me one time, this chapter isn't about love, it's about tongues ceasing. And I was like, Okay, you got one scripture that talks about tongue ceasing, and you got all these others that talk about love. No, the whole chapter is about love and its endurance. You know, the, the knowledge in the tongues and the gifts ceasing after this life when we don't need them anymore is just emphasizing the issue of love and its everlasting endurance. And he ends with even in faith, hope, and love, still even of these, the greatest of these is love. So he's appealing to this body of believers to love one another and to love one another the way that God 
loves. And to show that love to one another, for love is the thing that will remain when everything else is gone. Love will remain. So it's interesting, he starts talking about gifts in the body of Christ in and, and, and chapter 12. In chapter 14, he's going to deal with the issue of corporate worship. And right in the middle of it, he sticks this chapter on love to show the importance of love. So coming out of chapter 13 into chapter 14, I'm behind on my slides, there's the love chapter. All right, chapter 14, chapter 14, um, on your book on page 68, no, on page 60, oh, we read that, okay, he lumps it all together in several chapters. Okay, uh, instructions in corporate worship as it relates to two certain gifts, the gift of prophecy and the gift of tongues. So if you'll look in chapter 14 in your scripture, here's the overall emphasis. Paul's emphasis is that we need to do in our corporate worship services and that they needed to do in their corporate worship service what will best edify and build up the body. Just like you don't divide over here and and the rich eat over here and the poor eat over here, you eat together so as to edify the body. When you worship, you worship. So all of your worship builds up the body. So the two things that were to build up the body, or the main thing that was to build up the body, is the gift of prophecy. The gift of prophecy was the main gift that was to build up the corporate body. So the two major gifts he deals with here in chapter 14 is the gift of prophecy and the gift of tongues. So he begins in chapter 14 and verse 1 with this instruction. He says, Follow the way of love, or pursue love, and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy, especially prophecy. Okay, let me break down a couple of terms so we'll all agree. I want to break down the terms of prophecy. I want to break down the term of tongues. All right, prophecy in this instance, prophecy has two meanings. One meaning of prophecy can be And a lot of times when we think of prophecy, we think of predicting the future. That is not, that's one function of prophecy, it's one type of prophecy, but that's not the prophecy Paul is talking about here. One type of prophecy would be to foretell future events. That's not what we're talking about right now. The next type of prophecy is to foretell, foretell the truths of God as given by the Holy Spirit. To foretell the truths of God as given by the Holy Spirit. So the simple definition is a human report of a divine revelation. And prophecy is not as complicated as some make it out to be. It's not even as spiritual as some make it out to be. If I was to say, has God spoke something or has God put something on your heart today? Has God done something for you this week? And you were to come up and say, you know, I was reading my Bible and studying this morning, and here's what God showed me. We would say, oh, well, that's great. God showed you something through the Bible. But that is, what is, a, that is a simple definition of prophecy. If God spoke something on my heart to call somebody and encourage them, I gave them a word of prophecy. I gave them something that the Holy Spirit revealed to me. 
a testimony, a scripture, a word that, God, that has inspired you by the Holy Spirit, not on the same level as authoritative scripture, but something that God's put in your heart to share. We had a lady in the previous church that I pastored in, in Newburn. She, a sweet lady, she had a gift of writing. Every morning she would go out on her back porch and she would look outside and she would see the birds and she would, you know, watch the sky and watch the trees. And she would just begin to write what God had put on her heart. Some of the greatest writing. And she would come on, on Sundays and mostly on Sunday nights when we had a Sunday night service. And she would say, can I share what the Lord shared with me this morning? And I said, sure. And she'd get up and she would read something that God had put on her heart. You know, and it just encouraged all of us. You know, it just built us all up. And one day I said, you know what? I, I said, Miss Mady right here, I said, you know, she comes in here and she reads what the Lord showed her and it, it encourages and edifies us. And I said, sometimes we just see that. Oh, Miss Mady has something she wants to read to us. No, that was a word that God gave her that she used as a word of prophecy to edify and build us up. So we see here, and I want to read this, prophecy. Well, I may get to it here in my notes. Let me just read this. So prophecy is speaking forth merely in human words, something that God has brought to our minds and to our hearts. Now, these words are to bring about edification, exhortation, and comfort. This kind of prophecy is not, if you don't get right, you're going to die. You know, if you don't get right, you're going to be in a car accident. That's not this type of prophecy. For he reads here, um, let's go to verse number... Three, chapter 14, verse 3. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. Their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. So a prophetic word is an encouraging word that, that comforts, that brings strength and encouragement to the body. Again, it can be just something God put on your heart, something that, you know, God spoke to you, an encouraging word for somebody else. And it's simple. I think we over-mysticize things in the church. We have to say, oh, thus saith the Lord. It's, it's not that at all. It's way more human than that. You know, it's not even going in a trance and seeing visions and all. It's, it's not that at all. It's simply relaying what God spoke to you. It's simply relaying something that God showed you in scriptures that would edify and encourage and build up each other in the body. And he says everyone should desire to do that. Everyone should desire to prophesy, to speak words that God has placed on their hearts to encourage, edify, and comfort. And we should earnestly desire to exercise those gifts within the body of Christ. So prophecy edifies the church. And Paul would that all would prophesy. So that's a simple gift of prophecy. Just encouraging the body with something that God has put on your heart. And it builds up the body and encourages them. The next gift that he talks about is the gift of tongues. Now the New Testament tongues is a very tangled uh, topic. So we must untangle the topic of tongues. And the reason that we must untangle the topic is because when you read back, it says there are diverse kinds of tongues. There are different kinds of tongues. The first type of tongues we see in the Bible, as far as the New Testament church is concerned, is in Acts chapter 2. If you remember in Acts chapter 2, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, 
And they began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave utterance. They went forth and they began to preach the gospel. And every man heard them speak in their own language. Language that they had never learned before. God gave them the supernatural ability to speak a language they didn't know in order to communicate the gospel. That's the first kind of tongue. Known languages of different nationalities where men were or people were speaking the gospel to people in their own language. That was a sign to the Jews of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That was a sign to the Jews that this is what God had promised to you. That's the first kind. Now in 1 Corinthians 14, we see a totally different kind. In Acts 2, you had people speaking to people. Here's what we find in 1 Corinthians 14. Look with me in verse number 2. So he encourages people to prophesy. He says, For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people. So in Acts 2, we have people speaking in tongues to people. In 1 Corinthians 14, we have a tongue in which you do not speak to people, but you speak to God. So in one instance, can you see the difference? In one instance, you have people speaking in a foreign, unknown, previously unlearned language to people. Here, you have people speaking in a tongue to God. So you have tongues as a language of prayer unto God, which the Scripture goes on to say can be interpreted also by the Spirit. Now, also within the church, this was used corporately. If you look in verse number 26 of, ver of chapter 14, chapter 14, verse 26. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together corporately? Each of you has a hymn, a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. So here's, in essence, what Paul is going to say to them in 1 Corinthians 14. If you speak in an unknown tongue and you're praying to God, keep that to yourself. Because if you don't, no one's going to understand what you're saying and everyone's going to be confused. He says, but if there is an interpretation, have someone interpreted that everyone may understand and then the church may be built up and edified. Because tongues plus an interpretation equals prophecy. Because everyone knows and everyone can be built up. Paul said, I speak in tongues more than you all. He says, but in the church, I would rather to speak a few words that you understand than a bunch of words that nobody understands. So you have the three types of tongues. You have the tongues as a sign at Pentecost, which were known languages, men speaking to men. You have the tongues as a prayer language where you speak not unto men, but unto God. And then you have tongues as a ministry in the church, which is tongues plus interpretation in the church. Tongues as a prayer language, he says, edifies yourself. But when the whole church can understand it, edifies the church. So that's what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 14. Let me just give you an overview. Verses 1 through 5 talk about uh, 
seek to edify the church through prophecy or through tongues interpretation. Verses 6 through 21, he gives an admonition against being unintelligible in church, that if you're together and you know, you're speaking languages nobody else can understand, is not doing anybody else any good. Uh, in verses 22 through 25, he talks about unbelievers that would come into the assembly. He said, tongues are for a sign for unbelievers, but if you come in and everybody's speaking in tongues all together, there's no interpretation, he's going to think everybody's mad and crazy, and he's not going to get anything out of it. He says, but if an unbeliever comes in and the believers are prophesying one by one, then he will hear and understand and be convicted and come to Christ. So he gives the purpose of tongues. In verses 26 through 35, he gives the instructions for order in worship. You know, he says, if, you know, if one, you know, prophesy, prophesy one by one, let the others judge. Um, if somebody speaks in tongues, let it be done in order. So he gives a proper order for worship in the church. And then in verse 36 through 39, he gives final admonitions. So verse 36, let's look in 36 together. Verse says, Or did the word of God originate with you? He's encouraging them to follow the instructions that Paul gives. He says, Or do you think the word of God originated with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? For if anyone thinks they are a prophet, or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge what I am writing to you as the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they will themselves be ignorant. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. So he's correcting the abuses there. In essence, by saying, when you come together, come together and use the gifts so that everyone will understand. And everyone will be edified and unbelievers can have a chance to believe. And all this will edify one another, and you will not abuse these gifts. So that's what he's saying here in chapter 14. Our last major issue in the book here is 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll briefly go over 1 Corinthians 15. And this is the chapter on the resurrection, chapter on the resurrection. And this chapter can be broken down in four parts, four parts. Verses 1 through 11, verses 12 through 33, verse 35 through 50, and verse 50 through 57. Again, that's verses 1 through 11, that's the first part of that chapter. Verses 12 through 33, that's the second part. Verse 35 through 50, that's the third part, and 50 through 57. 34? Oh, yeah. 12 through 34. You think better than I read. 12 through 34. The first 11 verses deal with the fact of the resurrection. That the resurrection is a fact. The second part deals with the consequences if there is no resurrection. If there is no resurrection, what are the consequences of that? The next deals with, well, if there is a resurrection, what does the body look like? What, what does a resurrected body look like? And verse 50 through 57 deals with the mystery of the change and the ultimate victory over death. 
mystery of the change and the ultimate victory over the death. Um, 1 Corinthians 15 deals, I mean, it talks about if the dead, the dead. Uh, and literally, when you read, there, there's a little bit of difference when you read in our translations versus if you were to pick up a, I read it, I read this whole chapter yesterday in a, um, in a, in a, uh, a Greek concordance and, 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 and a Greek interlinear version of the Bible. And it reads a little different. When it has dead, it has dead ones, the dead ones. When you talk about the dead ones, who are those who will experience or are experiencing resurrection? I've identified a, a few of those. First of all, you have the old covenant saints that have died. Those before Christ. Those before Christ would have been said to go, uh, they use the term, you know, they, they slept with their fathers. You know, the primary Jewish belief is that all the dead went to this realm of the dead called Hades. It wasn't hell as we thought, but it was kind of a, just a holding place. It was the place where all of the dead go. And all the Old Testament saints were there. Well, the goal is, after Christ's resurrection, you know, is to get the Old Testament saints who died in faith into heaven. Then you have those who were in the church age who were, who were, who were those who were the dead in Christ. The dead in Christ. Now, the dead in Christ didn't go down to Hades as a holding place because Christ had already went down and led captivity captive. So they were the dead in Christ. So when they died, they were absent from the body and present with the Lord. We speak about our loved ones. You know, the body is laying here, but they are in heaven. Well, the question is, what kind of body do they have in heaven? What, what does that look like? So you have the Old Testament saints who under the Old Testament were in the Old Testament were in a place called Hades, the realm of the dead. Everybody went there that were waiting a resurrection to go up to be with the Lord. Then you have those after Christ's resurrection who had died in Christ, who don't have to go to a holding place, but to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Then you have Paul that was saying, you know, we who are alive and remain. So you have these dead ones. Um, one of the key verses here is uh, chapter 15, verse 19. I'll read it to you. It says, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. So he talks about this life and obviously the next life, that we don't just have hope. We don't just go to the ground. We don't just go to the place of the dead where all the departed souls go just to exist in some mythical afterworld that many of the ancient Greeks and everybody believed. But yet, we have a hope after this life. So this verse is kind of central to, to our purpose. Now, when we talk about resurrection, there's a few different types of resurrection. First of all, I want us to understand we have all experienced, those of us who are in Christ, we've already experienced a resurrection. We were brought from death to life. As our old man died with him, our new man was raised with Christ. And there are many different scriptures that talk about since you have been raised with Christ. Since you've been raised with Christ. So we've already experienced a spiritual resurrection that we have a part of here on this earth. Which to me, that's more critical now than what's going to happen after we die. That's kind of not up to us. That, that's, but we do have a responsibility now that we can live a resurrected life based on the resurrection of Christ. 
Then, as I said, you have the resurrection of the old covenant saints from Hades to heaven. You have the spiritual bodies of those that have died in Christ that are now in heaven with him. Then you have those that will be changed at the last trumpet. One of the things that is interesting, as I read yesterday in the interlinear Bible, that doesn't really, and, and it kind of plays with some, some thought processes here. On the surface level, reading 1 Corinthians 15 almost gives resurrection as exclusively a future event. But there is a, there are, in the Greek language, there's, like we have in our language, past, present, and future tense. You know, I went to the store, you know, I'm going to the store, I will go to the store. Well, in Greek's the same way. They have verb tenses for things that happened in the past, things that are happening in the present, things that are happening in the future. And the interesting thing, and I don't know why, I have to do some more studying, but I found this as I was going through this. Many, there, when it talks about resurrection here, many of the instances, it's talking about resurrection that is happening now, not that will be. Uh, some of these are, uh, if you were to read it in the interlinear, it reads, verse 15 reads like this, if the dead ones are not being raised. Verse 16, if the dead ones are not rising. Verse 26, the last enemy that is being destroyed. So it's almost like you now have a progressive until the completion. That he does speak of a completion. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. But now there's a process. And I believe that, I believe that resurrection began with Jesus' resurrection. That the Old Testament saints were resurrected out of Hades and into heaven. And that when our physical bodies die, our spiritual bodies are raised to be with Christ in heaven. And then he goes on to talk about, you know, at the last trumpet, we shall be changed. So there is a progressive here as well as a completion. In verse 32, if the dead ones are not rising. Verse 35, how are the dead ones being raised and with what body are they coming? So you see there's a, when you read it, it's not really brought over that way in English, and I don't know why, but um, it's to say that this is obviously a multi- Faceted event and not just one. So we see here um, the facts base. Let me just run through uh, very quickly. Number one, the first 11 verses. We said the resurrection is based on fact. He uses his Christ resurrection. That Christ resurrection was according to the scriptures. He goes back to the scriptures to prove Christ's resurrection. He says Christ's resurrection was not just foretold in the scriptures, but Christ's resurrection was seen by eyewitnesses. And he lists, he was seen by Peter. He was seen by the 12. He was seen by over 500. He was seen by James. And then Paul said, he was seen by me as one born out of due time. So he bases the resurrection on the gospel of Christ. That's what he does in the first 11 verses. In the next verses, 12 through 34, he gives the consequences if there is no resurrection. Let me just list some of these for you. If the dead are not raised, he says, then Christ has not been raised. If there's no such thing as resurrection, Christ has not been raised. He says, if there's no resurrection, our preaching is useless. Our faith is useless. We're found to be false witnesses for preaching the gospel. He says, those who have died in Christ are completely lost and gone forever. He says, if there's no resurrection, then the Father isn't subject to Christ. He says, if there is no resurrection, then why are we suffering and being persecuted? 
He says, why are we being baptized for the dead? Which is a whole other issue we're not getting into. But he says, here's the consequences. If there's no resurrection, basically we have a hopeless and powerless faith. If there's no resurrection, for even Christ would not have been raised. So he starts the chapter by saying, here's the proof, Christ. Here's what happens when, if you, if you say there is no resurrection, we have a useless faith. And then he says, but if there is a resurrection, what kind of body is a resurrected body? And here's the kind of body. Here's what we know about the bodies as here in 1 Corinthians 15. They are spiritual and incorruptible versus the natural and corruptible that we have here. So that's one thing. What we find here about the nature of the body is that the earthly body must die and be planted. In order for the spiritual body to live, the earthly body must die and be planted. And God gives a new body as He has determined, a heavenly body. So God gives us a new body. And this body is, here's some of the words used, imperishable, glorious, in power, spiritual, of heaven, heavenly, and not of flesh and blood. That's some of the words he uses to describe this resurrected body. And um, what a powerful body it sounds like. One just like Christ's. Then the last thing he mentions in chapter 50 or verse 50 through 57 is the mystery of the change and the ultimate victory over death. He begins in verse 50 by saying, We shall not all sleep. We shall not all sleep. We shall not all die. Or, but we shall all be changed. When will this happen? Well, he says, in a moment. Just like that, in the twinkling of an eye. At the last trumpet. And there's a lot of discussion about that. But we'll just leave it as, when is at the last trumpet? What will happen? Well, the dead will be raised. Or as I... I kind of read into it based on everything else. The dead will be completely raised, imperishable and spiritual. And Paul says, and we will be changed. So the dead will be completely raised and we will be changed. And what is the result of this? The result is the saying will come true, death is swallowed up in victory. And then he adds this, which is interesting given the, the topic. He says, the sting of death, and let's see, this is verse number 56. I'm not even on the right page in my Bible. No wonder it wasn't there on the other page. 56, the sting of death is sin. He adds, the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So through Jesus, the law is fulfilled Death has been paid for, or sin has been paid for. Death has no dominion over us, and we can be raised with Christ both now and after this life. And he ends by saying in verse 58, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, stand firm. Not even death has power over you, because you'll be resurrected from that. You've been delivered from sin and the law. Therefore, Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. On page 68 in your book, 
chapter 16 is concluding matters. He takes up several different matters. I'll let you read that. But go over to 69, page 69, and I want to read the last paragraph that he puts here. And this will kind of close out 1 Corinthians. He says, This letter holds an important place in the biblical story, reminding us constantly that, number one, God calls a people to himself so they might be conformed to his own likeness reflected in the apparent weakness and folly of the cross and that too in the end he will overcome our final enemy and his final enemy death by resurrection and transformation. God wants to make of himself a people that will show his light and his hope and his gospel to the world. And the Corinthians were the people here that Paul was writing to. He doesn't want them to be divided. He doesn't want them to be immature. He doesn't want them to to act and run the affairs of the church like the world does. He doesn't want the the sin of the world to come into the church and, and corrupt. He wants them to be one body, one unified loaf of bread, the body of Christ, without divisions. Yes, being diverse and using the diversity of their gifts, but using the diversity of their gifts as one to build up the body so that their services and worship together can have meaning that they can be bonded together in love, that they can do everything in order which glorifies the God and fulfills the mission of the church because they know that through Christ, the ultimate victory is theirs. And the only thing that can stop their influence is them. They know that they have the victory through Christ and they've defeated sin and death and, and overcome through the blood and the body of Jesus Christ. And he wants them to shine as bright lights into this world which every church should strive for that, to be one body, unified under one Lord, serving and using the talents and gifts God has blessed us with so that we can be a testimony and a witness to the world around us. Women not speaking... We, we, did, we did skip that part. We did skip that part. Um, and the, the several instances here with the women, um, traditionally in the gatherings, the women would sit together and the men would sit together. Um, and oftentimes there would be disruption, there would be discussion, and obviously if, if you're trying to you know, preach or whatever and you, know, you have everybody talking over here and asking questions, then that's going to cause some issues. And because the whole thing, again, the whole thing doesn't have to do with Paul hates women. It has to do with order in the church. So if something's happening from this group of women, because women were not educated back then, they were not able to learn, they were not able to, to sit with men, they were not able to do a lot. Now, the church broke a lot of that because we just saw, now, we just saw in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 11, it says, every woman that prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, so women did pray and prophesy in the church. So if, if he says women pray and prophesy in the church, and then over here in this chapter he says women shouldn't speak, then he's contradicting himself. So obviously the women not speaking has to do with the disruption that was happening uh, because the whole section is everything should be done decently and in order. It can absolutely be taken out of context, yes. Because Paul would absolutely contradict himself. If he says the women can pray and prophesy with their heads covered in chapter 11, but then says women can't speak in chapter 14, 
it's like, okay, there's a contradiction. So he's not saying women can't speak at all. He's saying those who are causing a distraction, everything should be done decently in order. So those that are causing the distraction should keep quiet and ask their husbands at home. So yes, everything can be taken out of context. 